morning, everyone. Uh, today, the Bible reading will be from John 16. Um, it will be verses uh, 20 to 22. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Hi everyone. Sorry I can't be with you there in person. I'm just a little bit out of the weather at the moment. But I'm glad to be able to come to you at least in this video as we continue on in our series in prayer. There's that classic story in the Bible where God comes to King Solomon in a dream and he says, I'll give you whatever you ask for. I wonder what you'd ask for from God, knowing that you get it. Presumably it'd be something like your greatest need. Solomon, he asked for wisdom to lead the people of Israel as God had called him to, and that was precisely what God thought he needed too, and so God gave it to him. And so what do you think is your greatest need? What would you desperately love for God to give you? Now, maybe you've already had that conversation. Maybe you've asked God over and over for something and he hasn't given it to you. And maybe that's made you a little bit jaded, you know, a bit less interested in talking to God. I was chatting with uh, someone the other day and uh, they prayed to God that uh, he would give them someone who genuinely loved them and that he could genuinely love them back. But instead, you've got a cat. And he's feeling a little bit ripped off, like God's shortchanged him or hasn't really come through on what he needs. And so maybe he's thinking prayer that hasn't been working for him like it should. What about you? Where are you at with prayer? What are you asking God for or stopped asking God for? Because there's no doubt God wants us to pray. And so it's worth checking out the Bible to see at heart what prayer is and what we should be praying for, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Firstly, as we look at the first prayer in the Bible, secondly, what it means to call on the name of the Lord, and finally, what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. So, firstly, the first prayer in the Bible. I'm sure many of us have heard that prayer is simply talking to God. So then on that definition, in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, talking with God there, that's prayer. And their son, Cain, talking with God later on, is prayer too. But it seems the Bible understands prayer as we know it now a little differently. Because we know Jesus is God, and yet he seems to make a distinction between his disciples talking to him and with prayer. After all, his disciples ask him, teach us to pray, and he doesn't say, well, you already are, dummies. No, he says, well, when you pray say this, it goes on to tell them the famous Lord's Prayer. So there's a distinction between talking with God face to face and prayer. Prayer is different to speaking with him when he's immediately there in front of someone, like he was with Adam and Eve and Cain and later Abraham and Moses and after later on the 12 disciples. And so prayer seems to be when people talk to God when he's not immediately present. So if that's the case, where is the first instance of prayer in the Bible? Well, it seems to be in chapter 4 of Genesis, where we're told, 
At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord seems to be the first recording of prayer as we know in the Bible. But what is it that prompts this? What is the, the time being referred to here? Well, the immediate context tells us it's the time of Enoch's of Enoch birth, that is, Adam's grandson. Now, Enosh doesn't get much of a mention elsewhere in the Bible. He's almost a forgettable addition. Just another man who comes and goes. Uh, but it's like the text is searching for some answer in the children of Adam and not finding it. And maybe it's got to do with the big question raised by God's promise in Genesis 3. After the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit, God curses the serpent. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promises that one of Eve's sons will crush the serpent's head. That, that supernatural deceiver and liar and murderer will have his head crushed by a son of Eve. That's what God promises. Which hints at something of a reversal. That a son of Eve will turn the curse that's come by virtue of sin coming into the world to a blessing. Turn death to life. Turn suffering to peace. And, and maybe the community growing around Adam and Eve had their hopes set on that person being Cain or Abel. But Abel gets murdered, and Cain, who murders him, seems to be more on the serpent's side than wanting to crush his head. And even Adam and Eve's next son, Seth, he gets a passing mention, and then along comes Enosh, and like his dad, he's a bit of a non-event. It's just another man. Comes and goes. Another generation. Come and gone. And maybe people are thinking, okay, Where's this offspring of Eve that God promised to come and crush the serpent's head? And it's at this point that we're told that people began to call on the name of the Lord, which, as the Old Testament goes on, is seen as a phrase that's synonymous with prayer. Elijah the prophet says as much in 1 Kings 18, where he challenges the prophets of the Canaanite god Baal to burn up a sacrifice just by calling on the name of their god. Then you call on the name of your God, Elijah says, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So after the prophets of Baal uselessly flower around for the morning with no response, we read this. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, answer me. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. So in this cool story, we see that for, the, for Elijah, calling on the name of the Lord and prayer, they're the same thing. And so way back then in Genesis 4, when we're told people started calling on the name of the Lord, it seems to be the first recorded instance of prayer and tells us something of what's at the heart of prayer. Prayer, then, at the very heart of this, is something done in response to God's promises. I bought a watch uh, recently, the, uh, the white bag was half the price of the same watch with different colours, so not my first choice, but, you know, whatever. I got it primarily to uh, keep track of my heart rate and other body metrics to help me manage my fitness, which clearly I need, which it does with these cool little sensors under it. So currently my heart rate is uh, 70 beats per minute. It just tells me what it is so I can respond in an appropriate way. And prayer is a little bit like this. It reads the pulse of God's promises as they beat through the whole Bible so that we might respond to them appropriately. Which brings us to the second point. 
prayer as calling on the name of the Lord. But what does this mean precisely? I think we all know what it means to call, it's to speak, right? To cry out using words. But what about calling on someone's name? Well, back in the day, to call on someone's call on someone's name is to call on their nature, you know, what they're like. So what have we seen of God's nature up to the end of Genesis chapter four? We've seen him create the heavens and the earth and everything in them just by speaking. Uh, his word is powerful. His word is effective. Uh, and he keeps his word. So if Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, just as God promised, they die eventually, as does everyone after them. And just as he promised, because they disobeyed him, life for Adam and Eve becomes full of trouble and suffering, and for everyone else after them. God keeps his word. So at the very least, God's nature is tied up with his word, with what he says and what he promises. So to call on the name of God is to call on his nature as the one whose word is true, the one who, whatever he says, always happens. And this is not just because of what he says, like some magical incantation, but because of who he is, the Lord, which is the translation of this Hebrew word, the word that's sometimes pronounced as Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, but this name is the name God gave to the Israelites, a name he didn't have to give them, a name he doesn't need to have, but he gave it nonetheless to bless his people and to instruct them. And it means I am, or I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. It's a verb. Uh, imagine if you had to pick a verb for a name. For most teenagers, it would be iPhone. See what I did there? <laughs> I asked a busy mum the other day what verb she picked for a name, and she said, tiring. I thought maybe for myself, I sleep, because that's generally what happens whenever I sit down. But I am? This is seriously the best one for God to pick. It's a genius name for him. It speaks of his utter self-existence, I am, and unchangeableness, I will be what I will be. And as the I am, his word will always be because he is, which is a great comfort for those who have his promises. It means he's faithful. He will always keep his word. He can't but not, because that would be to deny his very nature, which he can't do. To call on the name of the Lord, then, is to call on God's word. It's to ask him to keep his word, to keep his promises, which we can be assured he will do, because he cannot be other than himself. And so with this, we see all throughout the Bible that at heart, prayer is asking God to come good on his promises. So for instance, when God makes those super important promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, promises that we've banged on about as we've gone through Genesis over the last couple of years, promises of making him into a great nation and giving him the promised land and of blessing the world through him, Abraham's response is to then go and build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. Abraham prays God would come good on his promises. And then later, as the Israelites become a great nation, as God promised, but are slaves in Egypt, we're told the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God raises up Moses to save them. But here again, we see prayer is linked to God's covenant and his promises in that covenant, particularly prayers for salvation so that God's people might be with him 
and he with them as he promised. Another key example is when God makes super important promises to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David an everlasting dynasty, that a son of David will always sit on the throne. After hearing this, David goes into the temple to pray to thank God for these promises and prays, and now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. Later on, the prophet Daniel's prayer in exile in Babylon is particularly revealing. After all, the Israelites have been booted out of the promised land because of their persistent rejection of God, we read this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel praises God. He confesses sin. He asks God to forgive and to save, all because of God's promise that the, de- the desolation of Jerusalem would be over in seven years. Daniel's entire prayer spins on asking God to keep his word. But time after time, the prayers in the Old Testament, from the, in the books of Genesis right through to Malachi, from King Solomon to King Hezekiah, from the prophets Elijah and Elisha to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, as we've heard, all pray calling on God to keep his covenant promises. In the 16th century, a political theorist, Nicola Machiavelli, wrote an instruction guide for new princes and royals called The Prince. Although controversial, it's been highly influential in Western politics down through the years. It's said to have influenced Henry VIII and his turn towards Protestantism. Napoleon of France, he was a fan, uh, so were the founding fathers of the American Revolution. In it, Machiavelli argues that all men are wicked and never keep their words, therefore a prince doesn't have to keep his. However, while he notes a prince is praised for keeping his word, it's often the most cunning who succeed politically. As such, a prince should only keep his word when it suits his purposes, but still work hard to make sure he always appears to keep his word. As Machiavelli says himself, a prince never lacks legitimate reasons to break his promise but it is necessary to know how to disguise this nature well and to be a great hypocrite and a liar. Now, this is quite a cynical view of ruling, but uh, it's predicated on something that's generally true, our our duplicitous and broken human nature, caring more that others see us keeping our word than actually keeping it. But God is not like people. He happily keeps his word because his word is so intrinsically wrapped up in who he is the I am, that to keep his word is for him to be himself. To pray and ask God to keep his word, it's effectively to say to God, you do you, 
Yet prayer in the Bible is to call on the name of the Lord, which is to ask God to come good on his promises, which is great for those who know Jesus. And this brings us to the final point, calling on the name of Jesus. Last week we touched on praying in the name of Jesus, particularly when Jesus tells his disciples to ask his Father for anything in his name. And it's worth looking at that again. On the night before he's crucified, he tells his disciples, now is your time of grief. He's just told them he's about to leave and go where they can't go, i.e. his death. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. That is when he rises from the dead and appears to them later on over 40 days, and then they watch him go back to the Father in heaven. Of course, they'll be over the moon with joy then. In that day, that is, in the time after he's gone back to the Father, you will no longer ask me anything, he says, because he won't be immediately present with them. But, he goes on, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. Of course they haven't, because they've been asking God for, if they've been asking God for anything, like any good Jew, they would have been asking in the name of the Lord. And yet, Jesus is saying here, that with his coming and going back to the Father, when they pray, they're to ask the Father for anything in the name of Jesus, and they'll receive it. Ask, and you'll receive, and your joy will be complete, he says. So if calling on the name of the Lord is to ask God to keep his promises, and Jesus is saying that his disciples are asked now in his name, then the anything here that he's referring to must be with reference to God's promises. Pray in the name of Jesus, then, is to ask God to keep his promises in Jesus. Which promises? Well, all of them. As the Apostle Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And all God's promises in the Old Testament and the New Testament are yes and done in Christ. By being born a man, a son of Eve, so to speak, and by his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, Christ's taken death, suffering, and God's curse and judgment on himself, and he's dealt with them, so that eternal life and peace and blessing and forgiveness is for all those who believe in him. And as such, he's crushed Satan's head, as God promised to Eve. He's taken away our sins, as God's promised. He poured out the Holy Spirit on all those who believe in him, such that God is always with us and in us, as he promised. And these are just a few of the promises God made in his word that are fulfilled in Jesus. Promises that we can thank God for and ask for, knowing that as we trust in Jesus, he will give us what we ask. You might know Laura and JT from church here. They recently got married. Well, when they were looking to get married a while ago, I was like, that's fantastic. But thinking to myself, I hope they ask me to marry them, to officiate their marriage, their wedding. Telling myself I'm cool if they want someone else. But, yeah, not, not so cool. But wanting to be cool about it. So when they asked me if I wanted to marry them, I was like, yes, of course. Well, in the same way, in Jesus, God wants to say yes to any of the promises that he's made. And so as those trusting in Jesus, it makes total sense to get to know God's promises and to start asking him to keep them. Here's some Bible references to some of them. Maybe check them out. Take them to heart. Maybe even commit them to memory. And then 
get to asking God to keep his promises. In doing this, in praying like this, asking God to keep his promises, we'll not only be praying biblically, you'll have the added, added benefit of reshaping what we think we need to what we actually need. That is to know and to love and to serve Jesus more and more now and into eternity. And so to that end, and to have a go at praying to something uh, that we know God will answer and will say yes to, I thought each of us could pick one or two of those Bible verses up on the screen, uh, find God's promises in it, and then ask him to come good on his word. If you haven't got a Bible, uh, there's a bunch in the pigeonholes in the front of the sound desk that you can go and grab. So uh, let's spend a few minutes now doing that.